0: Good morning, good afternoon, good day to you wherever you may be. Welcome to The Motoring Historian. Uh, My name is John Summers and I'm here again with my school friend Mark Gammy. Say hello, Mark.
1: Hello, Mark.
0: Um, All right, so uh, without further ado, since we always talk a lot, let's have a look at our little agenda. And we were going to talk about Pebble Beach, weren't we? So, what
1: was your take on from it? Then, you know, you went there for a the few days. You saw all the stuff. You hung around with the uh, the Richies. What was your What was your take What was your highlight of the event?
0: My highlight of the event was um, the morning of the tour. Um, I went down with with Ollie, my son. He's now, but and we'd been once before. But this time he sort of knew what to do um, in terms of that you were like mingling with the cars and maybe taking some photos. And he knew what he was doing this time. Um, when we went before, um, he uh, he had less of an idea of. So so this time, right, we, we I, I mingled with all the people I wanted to. He behaved extremely well for that. And, you know, listened and didn't wander off and get in other people's way and all of that kind of thing, which is the normal reason why small kids can't go to those kind of events. Anyway, you, you know what the tour is like, where all the cars drive out under that hoarding and there's zillions of photographers, you know, professional photographers that are wanting to get paid for their, fo- for their photographs being be there. Um, and I guess this time, I mean, I'm not sure how well you remember it, but normally they, they used to turn right out of there with this time they were turning left so because that was different and the police closed the road off in a different way there was more than the usual amount of jostling and sharp elbows and ollie and i were a little late on the scene and uh i realized as we like crossed over the road that there was nowhere for for us to 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 stand but ollie could stand at the front in front of the photographers Below their height, where they were standing, as as long as I went to the back, so I communicated that to him, communicated that to some very rude photographers, and then left him at the front, knowing, trusting him to just stand at the front, and you know, watch watch the cars off. So I was like at the back, um, but communicating with him, and I was by an NBC, like one of those NBC E three fifties that they have with the boom on the top of it, that was doing filming. And I didn't really pay attention to the other people that I was stood next to because I was like looking through like the side of the, you know, where the, that van, the van's door was open. I was like looking through the crack in the door to th- like, uh, to, to see, you know, Ollie's little Ferrari hat to make sure he was where I left him and he was, he was watching away. Um, and uh, I realized I was standing next to Derek Hill, who's the master of ceremonies and whose dad is still the only American-born Formula One world champion for Ferrari, no less. And, you know, a guy who supported Pebble for a really long time and, and you know, an all-round nice guy, much too nice a guy to be a top racing driver, Phil Hill, That's the, that's the bottom line, much too much of a car lover. To be the kind of person who tore up a racing car you know he, in later years he was very much involved in the Pebble Beach show and restored cars and the cars that he had tend to be really you know interesting ones you know he, he learned to drive on his mother's Pierce Arrow you know he and he never lost his love for those kind of pre you know those kind of interwar Gatsby era American classics that are beloved of the of the Pebble Beach crowd. So yeah, so um so I was next to his son, who's about my age, and I said to him, you know, not quite what I just said to you, but I said, you know, that I respected his dad and and, you know, um yeah, I didn't gush in the way that I did when I met Lars Ulrich when I was about twenty five. It was it wasn't like that. Um But uh, um, I I said something to him and uh, we had a nice little backwards and forwards (laughs) conversation about, (laughs) you know, well, you know what it was about, right? Um, I have, um, I I was wearing these terrible pair of of tiger, um, you know, I wouldn't say trainers. They're more, they're like tennis shoes, aren't they? Kind of, but those Oninsuka tigers, they're about my third pair. And uh, the pair that I have at the moment, well, um, my wife's like, you can't wear those. And I was like, well, there's nothing else. And she went, well, they're terrible. You have to, like, you, you should buy new shoes. Like Anyway, so I was kind of embarrassed of my shoes because, you know, they always say you can judge how wealthy a bloke is by his shoes. And by that measure, I am the I look like the pauper I am, right? Um, so that doesn't always jive properly at Pebble. But I'm like, whatever. I'm just doing me this time. I'm going with Ollie. I'm not trying to be somebody I'm, I'm not. So, old Derek Hill goes, "I like your shoes." I go, "Oh, really?" My wife hates them. And he goes, "Ah, oh, really?" And then he puts his foot next to mine, and I realise that he's got the same shoe as me. And I, he's a much newer and nicer, but he's got the same shoe as as me. So we, so we, we compare shoes a, a, a little bit. And then Ollie comes over because the first batch of cars has has gone, and he's wearing like Ferrari cap and shirt. So Derek Hill engages him, and Ollie. Is you know as behaves as one would hope a eight year old boy would when meeting uh, you know old blo- uh, so you know old bloke who's going to chit chat about Ferrari and uh, old Hill turns to me and says uh, interesting uh, conversation we had I like the way you tell a story let me take your name and email address I may get in touch with you. So I gave him a name and an email address. And, uh, and he said, uh, your boy's better behaved than mine. And then went on his way to do his piece for uh, NBC. Yeah, so I guess that's the first thing that, that came to mind for me for a fun moment. Let me, let me share a more automotively focused moment with you as, as well. Do you remember Loralee's grade? that road that goes up over the hill from near Laguna Seca and then down the other side. And you may know that I know that road quite well since I stay there now or the last couple of years I've stayed near there and, and I've also, um, done, you know, journalist test drive stuff along that, that road. So I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident along there. So I use the E55, um, uh, for the, for the job this year and, uh, at the foot uh, when i turned off 68 to go right the way over the top at the foot of the grade there was a car probably a pair of tail lights probably 300 yards in front of me this is about you no know, 11:30 at night late at night empty road um clear good yeah. good weather um and he was about and in the lower section you can go really fast like you know uh, uh, you know, really fast. Thanks. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, so that's what I did. Um, and it it's only with hindsight that you realize that it was surprising that I didn't catch the pair of tail lights at that point, but as the road became twistier, I caught up the pair of tail lights. And it was a Remac Nevera. I kid you not. Now, this was, and when it got gets really twisty towards the top before the descent. Well, on the descent, dude, he couldn't leave me. I knew the road. I was all the way. Well, once it got straight down towards Bernardus, he got a bit of a gap on. But, and then, on the entry to bernardes he stopped to see me by right because i was probably 100 yards back by that point and he was turning in turning left into bernardes and i kid you not i i mean the satisfaction that it gave me when a 20 year old e55 with rust on the sunroof he couldn't put a gap between that and his 2000 horsepower remac that amused me somewhat. Um, I, I guess my thought on it is that I must have known the road somewhat better than, than him. Yeah. Um, a little agenda of, of, of Pebble. Um, and we were just talking about the, the remake there. I was really struck by the number of, of modern supercars there were, um, and talking with um, other people within the actual Pebble community, um, I, I think um, there's almost a subculture of um, Pebble Beach Car Week people emerging, and and it's you know it it's okay, so I was parked up in my little spot on Carmel Valley road, you know, the spot Mm -hmm. I was parked up there doing, you know, sitting by the side of the road, watching the cars come by and uh, the old, um, you know, Juan's gardening service dropped a uh, cone off the back of his pickup truck. And it's there lying in the road and I can see it in the rear view and all these cars coming up the hill, they can't see it. And, Everybody knows it's that test route, right? And I'm looking at it, and it's about two yards into one carriageway. So it's not right in the road, but it's blocking it. Hmm. It's making that carriageway very narrow, right on a bend. When So I'm thinking, wow, there could be a head-on here. If somebody makes a bad decision about placing the car, coming up the hill, and swerves around this thing a lot, then so they could head on somebody because they could go over the yellow line. Or if somebody slows down and there's somebody else who's test driving a Lucid or a McLaren up the hill here, they're you know they could potentially be doing you know autobahn kind of speeds. So that's so anyway, so I hopped out of the E55, trotted over, moved the, the cone, and as I moved the cone, I kid you not two dozen McLarens came by and I'm like, you know, they weren't making cars 10 years ago, right? That's why there's such a, and similarly Lamborghinis, so many Gallados, so many Hurricanes, particularly so many, even Aventadors, you know, the, the stuff, so much stuff that has been made in just the last 10 years, 10 or 15 years, you know, since, um, yeah, I don't know, I want to say since the Audi takeover in the case of, of Lamborghini, but yeah, there, there seems to be, um, and those people aren't coming to the Pebble Beach car show it, it, itself. So I feel like there's a whole subculture of Pebble Beach developing that must that must exist for shows and events um, for people between the age of like, you know, 18 and 40. And I feel like I'm in the doing the events for the people between, you know, 40 and 140.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't, yeah, you're definitely not with the uh, the Fast and Furious crew in their pimpmobiles outside. It must be said. Um, but I mean, look, it, it's I think a- anything like that, if I understand you correctly, sort of gathers sort of subcultures and stuff as it becomes wider. I mean, that thing's obviously been known around for ages, but um, as it gets more exposure and it's live streamed on YouTube and all these sort of stuff, it, it sort of becomes a bit of a broader event for people to engage in i suppose so it's more people turn up more people sort of doing their own thing around it but um
0: it's Carol Shelby Ferrari 410 the red one that's numbered 98 that RM had um dude i was like that's great like that's the one that's the yeah. one you know i wonder how much it it's is kind of load, you know and then as you approach you're like dude that is a big capacity Ferrari sports car from the late fifties so that is a that is a big money car all day long. The estimate was twenty five to twenty seven so I think it i think it's it, it sold for twenty two
1: yeah I don't have trouble believing it's
0: kind of a bargain next to that hundred and forty forty two yeah. million dollar Uhlan it was a bargain. <laughs> I mean yeah. yeah. But let's have a little look at gooding. Well, yeah, yeah? definitely. What caught your eye there? Um, I'm just I'm just I'm just scrolling through cool. gooding results. So I I've got as far as lot 18 that if if you know purely from my heart regardless of of values that was the car that I was absolutely and, and completely in, in love with. Um, the picture there doesn't do its faded glory any kind of, of justice. It was um, the paint was so faded off that I loved the red, and that black interior was was more tired than the interior of, uh, of my E fifty five, but it was. So this is the 400 GT two plus two, Lamborghini. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Lamborghini 400 GT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just looking. At, I I'm mean, just looking at the picture of it now, um, from the uh, from the El Gooding website, and uh, my word, what an awesome car! Love that. Yeah, there's some nice
1: stuff there. A lot of Porsches.
0: A lot of Porsches. A um, lot of roofs. You know, a sense that they're trying mm. to, um, and, and yeah, a sense with the roofs particularly that they, they're they trying to create um, a sort of rarefied market for, for Porsches. You know what I mean? It's like when Ducati do a version of the bike that has the really expensive wheels and suspension on it, and they're only going to do 100 of them that you know what I mean, they're, they're deliberately trying to create something that's a collector vehicle. And I feel that by packaging, um, I'm looking at lots four and five, I feel that by packaging lot four, alongside lot five, I feel like lot five, the 1990 car is collectible. I feel like lot four. I don't know, I mean, it hammered for more than lot five, I guess, because it's rarer. But that I, I, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, the collectible Porsche market, I can't pretend to, uh, to, to understand. Yeah. I'm looking here. I'm, I'm amazed. No, I mean, I would,
1: I'd have had the cheaper Porsche, I'd have had the uh, 2004 GT3 996 and saved lots of money.
0: Well, it's funny looking round. That was the car that I, uh, that, that I liked. Um, you forget how long the chin overhang is,
1: don't you? Like, yeah.
0: And, and the, uh, people hate on the, the, nine uh nine sixes now but that's a great looking car that lot 10 where it really really is um and you're right that next to the other yeah it's a real bargain um yeah and the the roof thing is it's it's investor money gone gone silly i mean
1: well and also like The Because you've got to remember that, that, you know, on Gran Turismo, they didn't have the Porsche license, but they had the RUF license. So therefore you could have a rough GT, you know, um, CTR2 and things like that, but you couldn't have a 911 for quite a long time. So that was the only way you get these in the game.
0: Uh, I did not know that. Yeah,
1: yeah, man. Gran Turismo, there for you.
0: The other thing that, um, that Ollie and I spent a long time hanging around was if you scroll down to lots 56, uh, 58, and 59, um, some guy was mm-hmm. having his, basically having a race car collection liquidized, and, and there were some awesome uh, cars. He had that, this lot 58, this Bud March 85, um, that evolved into the Porsche 956 designed by Adrian Newey um, and this AAR All-American Racers Gurney IndyCar. Um, that was you, you, you look at the picture there, the little thumbnail image on Gooding's website here, and it, it looks like a cool old car. You stand next to it and it's like a UFO. It's like a 200 mile an hour land born UFO really, uh, uh an, an, awesome. Uh,
1: a lot of the structure when you look at it from the side is engine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's
1: cheap man. 112, 112 grand for that.
0: Yeah. Cheap. Because it's hard to enjoy.
1: True. True. What? I mean, it is essentially a complete toy. Um, and probably undrivable on most of the circuits in the world because they have noise limits, which it would break.
0: Well, I was thinking that if it's truly an indie car, it's probably set up to only turn left. So it means that so so for me, right, I would do collectible NASCARs, but I would only want to do it. I would only want to collect road course cars um, because I've never driven on ovals, so it would be. V- impossible for me to enjoy a car that had been set up for a super speedway. You know, you just, you just, to me, I, if that car had been set up for <laughs> Indy, you're like dehistoricizing it to, to set, take it away from Indy. Let's say if it had been set up for road course and it looked like that, I looked closely at it and it seemed, you know, as if it had equal, you know, suspension arms and things like that. Um, at that point, um, but again, to enjoy it, right, you need a hauler, you need to go to a particular event, you know, you need probably a, you know, a mechanic. If if not, you know, you need to be really good yourself and have a lot of time to spend on it. You know, it's a much car, harder car to enjoy than, you know, that lot 60 that's next to it, that gullwing, you can take that to a cars and coffee. You know, you can take your wife out to dinner in in that, if you know, yeah. if it's in a nice place and you've got a nice place I'd take park. your point,
1: but like, you know, there's a bit of a gap between the two price-wise. Well,
0: I, 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 yes, but that's why a, a, I mean, and that's a really nice example of a Garwing, isn't it? I'm not sure if it's an aluminium body one there. It's got yeah. the rudge wheels and the silver makes it, is, is, you know, but no, I think that's why racing cars generally, historic racing cars are often far cheaper than you think because finding an environment to enjoy them is is really hard
1: true that yeah now there's some nice stuff here and there's stuff where you think that's you know i mean there has got plenty to go i mean i'm no expert on the used car market but just by the sort of sort of gut feels i mean that 1990 m3 looks like a about where you expected to go for, but yeah, I think there's some appreciation in there over the next
0: ten. What years. lot is that M three?
1: Uh, one hundred and eight.
0: We we uh, looked, looked at, we looked at that. 100. Ollie and I looked yeah. at that car. He liked the car, um, and and the car was cosmetically not perfect. It, it felt to me Maybe like that. that was a car that was part of a collection, which David Gooding had had to sell all of them rather than that one because that car didn't meet the sort of presentation standards that he uh, might normally have though. Some of the trim was faded on it. Um, I'm saying that like I'm a Pebble Beach judge. Obviously that made the car far more appealing to to me um, because it felt drivable. Mm. It felt like it had been driven and it felt drivable.
1: I mean, dude, I mean, lately I'll I'll bugger with this sort of stuff. If it can't be driven regularly, I'm not interested in it. Like, I'm interested in it from a point of view of like, you know, the sort of stuff you see in museums and things. And like, it's nice to know that they're still around. And you know, if I ever ever rich enough to buy that sort of stuff and then lucky enough to be able to rinse it at Goodwood, I will definitely do so. Um, because that's what they're for. Um, so it, you know, it's, but that depends on the type of car, doesn't it? But, um, So I always end up looking at the stuff like that and then going like, cool. But if I had the money, you know, it'd be nice to go to lunch in the 3500 GT Maserati. That'd be pretty cool. So it'd be nice to have that sort of like thing to cruise around in. Um, But uh, I mean, it's it's, it's like a kid in a sweet shop. There's so much stuff that you could have. It's amazing.
0: My uh, philosophy is to to split um, the stuff that you have to drive Um, from the, the stuff that's, that's purely collectible because there is something, um, you know, glorious about something like a dragster, which can only run on nitromethane and, you know, needs a full rebuild after you run it, um, these are magnificent, magnificent machines and there should be room in the corner of the barn to keep these things. There's
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah for real. I mean, that's fair enough. Those top fuel things are just crazy.
0: so my version of that is sports bikes and Suzuki GSXRs, particularly. And I that is why I've thought a lot about this idea of, of things being hard to enjoy because um Jixas are hard to enjoy on, on the road. You know, most of them can do hundred miles an hour in first gear. So that makes them a hard thing to, to enjoy. And, and, you know, I lack the skill to enjoy them properly on, on the track. And it leaves you in this place of feeling, well, there really is no place for them. Yet they remain absolutely glorious in their intersection of huge performance and super super accessible price point. It's like the democratization of performance, and maybe that's why we were talking about the guys with the McLarens and the Lamborghinis. I think that's maybe why I'm. I, I wouldn't say I'm I'm snide about them because I'm everyone. I, I want everybody to enjoy the the car hobby and and automobiles and so on in their own way but you do feel a a little bit as if um you know i would feel a little bit of a poser in in a lamborghini when you can achieve let's just create a pause here whilst dana gets her lunch in you're not really a classic car person. You're like a driving person. I've always thought this about you. You're like a driving person who has the right, like a running person who has the right shoes for for the job. The interest in cars is the same as the runner's interest in running shoes in making sure he's got the right the right tool for the job. Um, and classic cars are never going to be the best tool for the job. Um, but here's the thing, you know, when I had a small lump of money a while ago, I, I looked at buying a, a classic car and the whole thing with it is, is that I'm not, you know, I could have bought a nice ish muscle car, um, but I, I just couldn't see myself like buying a deck chair and going to car shows and parking up and sitting in the deck chair and, you know, chit-chatting with people about you know how it was a five speed now but it used to be a three speed and you know no it wasn't a big block and you know and I'm just I don't know that's not where the the hobby is is for me so You know, I like the fact that different people do the hobby in different kinds of ways. If you want to have, you know, have a Mustang in your semi-detached house in, you know, the home counties of England, you know, if you want to have a 60s, you know, automatic 289 Hmm. Mustang, you know, be my guest. You know, it's not my thing, but but be my guest. I I do draw the line. I, I see people with, you know, that blobby era that white car that we're looking at, my racing car, the the 95, 94, 95, that kind of of era, Um, that blobby body style, those cars with six-cylinder engines, for me, not collectible. With eight-cylinder engines, not to my taste, but collectible. I like my car because it's slammed and it's got the Cobra wheels on it but it sort of needs those things without those things oh they're a little bit like capri 1.6s and capri 1.3s they're just i just oh i i mean i i love i love i love those cars in their ultimate form you know and this is an interesting question um i i asked um a room full of design professionals at stanford university no less I say a room full i mean A table of people sitting around the table. Um, Is the purest form of the Chevrolet Camaro the six cylinder rental car that you pick up at the airport, the convertible that everybody drives, that they make the most of with the automatic transmission and the steel wheels and the tour tires? Is that the purest iteration of Camaro? Or is the purest iteration of Camaro the ZL1 with the supercharged? 650 horsepower V8 and the stick shift and the look like it just fell out of the Transformers movie because it just did, um, which is the pure iteration of, of Camaro. And they said, oh, always the most extreme one because that's what the designer intended. That's what the designer had in mind when he thought of Camaro he or she thought of camaro they thought of that extreme interpretation they thought z01 they thought z28 um they thought you know black alloy wheels not silver painted pressed steel ones
1: i mean yeah, so that's interesting. So that so so do you? I mean, because I never really considered which way round they but they they do these because when you see concept car designs and you see design art studio people doing interpretations or gesture, you know, and the thought experiments for um, uh, manufacturers, even though they aren't working for them necessarily, a sort of like as much a CV effort, if you like, but still. Um, they always do the cool version it's very rare they'll do a homogenous dull box <laughs> and on the basis of that that might be what it'd be dumbed down to so you have to assume therefore that the designers don't change much when they become employed by the manufacturers so that they do do it that way around i just never considered it that because what a depressing process taking something that you've just made epically cool and then just boring the crap out of it in order to make it a more sort of like steel wheel sellable fifty thousand unit shit box In comparison to this gorgeous supermodel of a build that you've got in clay in the workshop that, you know, they won't build for four years because they've got to run out of enough enough metal to make enough money to justify your concept car.
0: So I, I met the bloke that was chief designer on the Volvo XC90, which not to my taste, but not, you know, a great car and loved by other great cars. I mean, famously Clarkson had three of them, didn't he when he was uh, was a family man. So I can acknowledge these are, uh, are a well designed vehicle, even if they're not, not my thing. And I said to him, I asked him when you see them on the road. Is it like seeing one of your children? You know, do you feel like proud of it when you see it? And he said, honestly, no, because there's so many elements of it which have changed. You know, I'm proud of what my team achieved, but I, you know, equally, I see elements of it, of the design, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, which I really don't like. I see elements of the design that I feel I told you so about to my team. And that I can't say. I'm not going to say to you, and I, I wouldn't say to them either, but I know when I look at that car, there are those things. Um, now I met the old, uh, I met, I can't remember the bloke's name, Japanese guy that designed the Nissan Leaf, and he was saying that until the sort of turn of the century, probably one person designed a car. But now it's really a, a committee designs a car. And really, they might say, oh, you know, Dave Jones designed it, but really that's because Dave Jones is a handsome young guy and the firm feel that he's the right person to represent them in talking about the design ethos of the company. He, you know, he didn't really design it. It's like the famous Bangle but that Chris Bangle was the design lead but it was actually Adrian von Hoyendijk, the guy who then went to Lamborghini, and I don't know where he is now. But it was him that actually did that design feature. It wasn't actually Chris Bangle um, at all. Um, um, the fellow that designed the Leaf, he said that it changed in that the. So I, I, so you know, do, does the Leaf, you know, this it changed from being a single person who had their stamp on a vehicle. So I, so for him, the car that he feels is very much him is the 1980s Nissan Maxima, not the Nissan Maxima that you will remember that crazy Texan perfume salesman World having in the 1990s. Which was a powerful world parfum. I'm sorry, that
1: was the company as I recollect.
0: Yeah, world, parfum. yeah,
1: Fuck me. That's all right. Headline Fuck on me. Ars Technica on the cars page Audi Audi will build F1 engines entering the sport in 2026.
0: Didn't Audi or didn't Volkswagen always say they always they never wanted to do Formula One? because they felt that they were developing a technology that would have no reflection on their road cars. So my understanding was they never wanted to do Formula 1 because they were building lots of... That would mean building V6s or V8s or V10s, and that was not something that they wanted to do. Whereas now, Formula 1's doing four-cylinder engines. It seems logical that Audi or VAG or whatever they're calling themselves now px organization would be interested in in doing yeah it looks uh, like they're going to do in like
1: their this. porsche and, and audi
0: um yeah the designer of the leaf he said he designed the first generation maxima not that blobby one that that world parfum guy that we worked with in Richmond or Alabama or wherever, Richmond, Virginia or wherever it was all those decades ago, not that 90s blobby Maxima, um, a squared off 80s version of uh, of that car, but with the same virtues as that car of the world parfum guy that you'll remember, like, you know, American style appointments inside and a remarkable lick of speed for a fairly staid looking you know, automatic sedan. Um, that So in the 80s, you felt like it was your car when you were a designer. Into the 90s, you lost that feeling. And, you know, by the 20th century, um, maybe it had gone completely. And that ties into what we were talking about, you know, when, uh, with Lucid a couple of weeks ago, that that was a small design team that had a free hand to design what they wanted to design, what they wanted to design. And they had this ethos of designing from the inside out. Um, and I know I also wanted to revisit uh, a comment that we made in a, in a previous pod about the shape being bland, the lucid shape being bland. Um, it's wind cheating. So it has to be that way. What isn't bland is if you see the car at night, the headlight pattern, is completely different from any other car and that's something which has changed and I think it's quite interesting just in the last couple of years is that car makers are looking to give themselves a brand identity in the shape of of the headlights for for Rivian Rivian are doing it as well they have a little oval but car makers are increasingly giving themselves a brand identity through the headlight shape and I kind of uh, through the headlight shape not in the day at night the way it projects at night and i i for one think that's interesting and mm. futuristic i suppose i was cool. thinking of
1: the 991s wraparound taillight and those maserati boomerang taillights on the 3200 that i so love that they then got rid of um but it's interesting when the manufacturers play with it a bit and do a bit something a bit different sometimes it's not very well received which is a bit of a shame because on reflection like those maserati lights they were they were cool um
0: yeah, the Maserati lights really were a, a, a thing. Those boomerang taillights on those early Maserati um, coupes, the 3200s. I think they lost 40 it for the 4200s, it's a real shame, but they had, in the 3200s, they um, had cars, those,
1: them in the 3200s, definitely. Weird cars, those, because you get them out in the Grand um, Sports. They've got an SMG only, but it's a paddle shift actual manual, if I
0: recall. That was the era of, I'm not sure if that car had it, but that was the era of sequential semi-automatic transmissions, wasn't it? You had two pedals and you went up and down the gearbox like a motorcycle where you had to be in every gear. I remember the Alpha GTA had that kind of gearbox, the Alpha 156, the hot rod version of that. You could get it with a pick. Or you could get it with basically a sequential. It was was a sequential. It acted like an automatic transmission in that it didn't have a a clutch pedal, but you moved paddles to make it shift or with some cars. And I think this alpha you had like like a touring car, you knocked the lever forward or you knocked it back to, to shift. Yeah. Yeah, like, a few of the cars
1: do that. But on the manuals, they have that sort of flip across from sort of the sort of up from you know R down to D and stuff um, on the left hand side. But you can click it over and then bang it up and down, can't you?
0: Yeah, this was um, this is different than on BMW on, than yeah. on most cars because most cars that BMW system the car still has a torque converter. I'm not sure if those Alfa Mayos had a conventional torque converter or if they just had a clutch like a motorcycle clutch, you know, in a gearbox that was was uh, i think it may have been a different a different thing but we don't know so we're just whittling aren't we um <laughs> uh, we've talked for ages here uh, you're just back from the pyrenees or wherever you were in france with this uh, uh spiffy new car like how was the vacation
1: very nice thanks um we've spoken briefly about it. Some of the highlights of the holiday, you know, visiting the Nîmes amphitheatre and so forth. Roman Colosseum outside of Italy. Fabulous. Um, still being used for entertainment. That was superb. But getting back to the car. Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, it's nice. I mean, I've done like, I think, 2,600 miles in it. Now, to be fair, most of that's payage, comfort mode just tickling along and it does that sort of you know middle weighty stuff the car of just loping along and eating the miles pretty effectively it's quite comfortable uh, i saw a review saying that the seats bite your ass after a while but i didn't find that so that was nice um and you know it looks decent um i've graunched the front <laughs> wheel even further because when you've got a wife who's got a hip problem you want to get as close to the little sort of uh petit bras um leaning out the left hand window with your little arms to get to the uh, the payage pay on the thing and uh pull the ticket out stuff so you want to get as close as possible so inevitably with the different um new car just um judging the uh the wheel the uh wheel arches and of course the wheel arches being extended out from the body shape by a couple of inches and three to the front and three inches or whatever it is at the back i made mistakes so i need to have the wheels resprayed but yeah anyway getting back to the meat of it Uh yeah i like it it's it's a nice car um It's weird in comfort mode, because when you give it some beans, it's got such it's got a noticeable drop off in power about below three and a half thousand revs. So if you don't take it up to about four and a half, five, it drops down to that three and a half. And then it's a little bit before it sort of picks back up again when the turbo scrolls up. Um, So it's quick anyway, but that can make it almost feel a bit lurchy. So you sort of need to bang into sport um, and then. Give it the beans, and remember that it'll happily rev up to about seven k. Uh, and then if you're not up about five or six, you know why. Um, and then it's pretty damn good. So it's uh, it feels decent. I mean, it's, the exhaust note's egregious when you start out from cold. Um, it really is. Um, we stay. We were fortunate enough to stay in some nice places, and you're conscious that you're in a, you know a quiet chateau, and you're leaving at seven o'clock to drive up to Lascaux, or six o'clock in the morning to drive up to Lascaux caves a few hundred miles away. <laughs> And that there's no way you can turn your car on and not wake everyone else in the shadow, which feels a bit bad. Um, but hey-ho. Um, but yeah, no, overall, it, it feels tight. I mean, the nicest driving I did, I suppose, was up in the Pyrenees. I'm not hugely surprising. There's the, the one of the roads that drives across from Po down towards um, the Spanish border, um, goes up towards... Um, Oh, cool. one of the, a couple of the coals and the Peak de Midi and so forth and yeah it's really it's there's some cracking roads and I got really lucky with a bit where I just came out and it was all sunny and uh, I turned left when there was a big queue of people going right and drove towards Spain for about I don't know 20 30 miles and didn't really see anyone maybe not that far in distance but had a good 15-20 minutes of just really enjoying some lovely nice sweeping sort of if it was in England A roads you know two lanes one lane each way but some reasonable twists and turns and elevation changes and stuff. So beautiful scenery, like little river down at the side of the road and so forth. Um, lovely sidelines lines and stuff. So that was a real sort of gem of a moment. And um it likes that sort of thing a lot. Um and you can make very rapid progress, as you would expect in that sort of car, without really straining it particularly. You can stay below the turbo, really spooling up and still lope along at an effortless decent pace. Um, but there is uh, you know, a noticeable jump up when you ramp above that. I mean, that said, the torque's still available from reasonably mid range, so it doesn't have feel like it's got a sort of rabid top end. Um, and I'm interested in there's a Litchfield um, conversion, where you can get a larger intercooler and push it up to the same sort of horsepower as on the competition. So it'll go up from like 370 to the 410 ish, something like that. Uh, and they do um, a tune with the exhaust um, to map it out properly. I'd be quite interested in that um, in a little bit of time, I think. Um, because there's clearly higher, more you can get from the top end of that car, as proved by the uh, the competition and the other ones that came afterwards. But yeah, it looks nice. It's carried all the luggage pretty well. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I still don't feel I know it properly. I'm going to see if I can squeeze it into a track day at Thruxton before the end of the year if we get some nice if the weather holds out because um, it's just not very far away and then have a bit more of a uh, feel of it at you know decent speeds because again, I mean, on the road, you can't really give it well, you shouldn't be giving it anywhere near what it can deliver. Um, so you don't really get a proper feel for what it's like. Um, even you know, getting to the limits of traction on second gear corners and so forth, you're still at points where you, you know it's too fast, you know, you shouldn't be doing that sort of speed on the road kind of thing. And if so, you know, I mean, it's it's uh yeah i think i mean it'll be fun to take it on track and see what see what it, it delivers there as well so yeah no early early indications are good i mean i will say as a slight downside to the upside that the experience of buying from used approved didn't really improve the car. There's about three things wrong with it um the uh i won't bore you well i can't bore you with it. the reversing in the proximity warning doesn't turn off when you pull it out of reverse and put it into first gear you have to turn the car off and on to stop the fucking thing beeping, which is quite annoying. Um, the map update that I bought for about eighty quid or whatever it was to have up to date maps before I went to Europe won't install, so that was quite annoying. <laughs> um, and it's got worse. Aircon. They when I, when it arrived, uh, I was thinking, oh look, it's the aircon's so cold that you can almost see like cold mist coming out of the the, the um uh, the vents, and I thought, hmm. That feels suspicious. Uh, like that they've overgassed it or something because the econ's actually not very good. Uh, and yeah, um, it, it's got basically slowly worse over the period of the holiday. Um, and you know if you set it at sort of twenty one or twenty two, it just doesn't get there on a hot day. It just stays like going really high and carrying on forever and never makes it to that temperature, which feels pretty shit. When my wife's Fiesta ST will do that comfortably, so, um. I'm suspicious that uh, there might be a reason why that dealership didn't want to do that work. Um, I mean, look, maybe it's just got a leak, but I feel that it might be one of those ones where they need to take the front of the engine off or something to get to the AC compressor. And it's that sort of ball ache of a job. So it's easier for someone else to do it under warranty from the BMW dealership. So maybe I'm just a suspicious bastard.
0: Finding Um, um, an air conditioning leak like that, which it sounds like what you've got finding that what, uh, pain in the bottom that's going to be well
1: i, I mean i've got 12 months bmw warranty because it's used approved which is what i bought from the dealer and i've got the extended upgraded warranty on it as well so unlucky boys give me a spare car while you fix it
0: well that would seem to be um in the case of the air conditioning something that uh, that i would look for look for them to do does it feel meaningfully faster than you know, your Nissan had what, has what, or had, um, what? Had 300,
1: 307.
0: 307. Allegiant. So do it feel meaningfully three. faster than that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it does. Um, it's, uh, I mean, yeah, it's, I think the Nissan's 5.5 5 to 60, and that's, with the SMG box, I think it's 4.5. I think with the manual, it's like 4.7 um, to 60. So, you know, it's, Pretty pokey, uh, and it's very fast. Um, it's, it was interesting that you know, I, I, Angie's a pretty good wingman for a uh, for a, a wag, <laughs> it's an awful way to say. It. <laughs> but she's pretty savvy with the uh, old overtaking and uh, seeing ahead and you know, judging gaps for me to be able to overtake on French roads because obviously you're you're passing you're driving from the gutter uh, in your right-hand drive car. Um, She's pretty good at that, but it took her a while to sort of get up to speed from the shift from 276 to 370 in terms of the available sort of point and squirt and nab gaps, um, was no, there was, there was much more potential for overtaking with, uh, less requirement for, um, yeah, perceived distance to oncoming, uh, collision. So, yeah, no, so that, that was good fun. I had it was funny actually. I I had it drove it back from um, Colchester, um, just tootling around on a sort of Friday or Monday afternoon, or whatever it was. Um, and then I took her out in the, that evening just to go down to the pub. And two people on the way down there, some guy cut trimming his hedge. I was a bit fruity through the through the uh, the. Uh, he lives in a little village down. Um, there's some lanes between us and him, and there's about six houses before another lane by the garden centre and the pub. And he was tripping his hedge. And I'd obviously been giving it a bit of a footfall for the, the missus um, uh, with it in sport mode. So it was giving it the full trombone. Um, and uh, as I came out the corner, he'd stopped trimming the hedge and was like looking down the lane to see who was coming. And uh, as I drove past him, he gave me the little sort of like divers, like nice, you know, as I came past. Uh, and then some old Gimmer, like like nodded appreciatively as we drove past as well. And Angie was like, are you telling me that this new car, you've got two people have just given you the thumbs up on the way to the pub. Um, And it does feel a bit more, I mean, uh, that that lad I know who's got, who had the uh, Lamborghini until recently, it's a a sort of sniff of his world in the sense that, you know, wherever you go in that sort of car, everyone's looking at you. It's like you're walking around with an absolute supermodel in your arm. I mean, it's that sort Mm -hmm. of level of consciousness. I'm not there at all, but, it did feel like a guy in a French um, garage said to Angie like, don't votre to what you have puffy, you know, like you know, kind of thing. as she was like trying to use the loo in there. Um, so you do get more notice in it. Um, and I wasn't necessarily quite after that um, at all, which is part of the reason I went for an M2 because it's a sort of chunked up two series. You know? It's just a two series and you know? there's not a lot to see. I mean the fact it's got four exhausts and punched out M badges all over the show, I can sort of ignore that, um, and most punters do. But it's still, you know, I suppose I can't play keen to be too shy of retiring given I painted the wheels gold. But um, although no, I, again, I, the I, wheels gold—that's not the gold that I asked for. I asked for frozen gold. And what they've done is lazily painted over the, the the gloss black in a couple of coats of frozen gold they've gone, Oh, you've got that sort of weird bronze color. Well, it looks quite cool. You can have that, which in theory is fine. But when you inevitably scuff them, you can't buy a rattle can of frozen gold to fix the, the, the bit because it's not the right color. So you're never going to be able to repaint them to that color. Um, so I'm going to have to have, when one's got a bit of a Nick, I'm going to need to get them all repainted to the color I asked for in the first place. Um, Otherwise, they're going to look bad-ended. So there is a
0: Yeah, I would... um, With that issue with them painting the... You know, painting frozen gold wheels over the black and not stripping the black back. And and now, you know, you being in this position where... Because you damaged one... You can't just repaint that one. You have to repaint all four. Um, I feel your best recourse is to have a conversation with the dealer and explain to them that in a reasonable way, and then try and get them to cover some of the cost of doing the job properly. Because you don't need to rub their face in the fact that it's their fault that, you're in this position and you only recently purchased the car you know it's not like you bought it six months ago you only just bought it now it's going
1: going to go back in for the other things to be fixed on it anyway um we'll see i mean i suspect they'll be reasonable about it but um i mean all the stuff that's wrong with it i think they'll fix i don't think they'll meet me halfway on the price for that. I mean, I was the one that damaged the wheel to be fair. Let's not mess about. Um, So that'll probably be their excuse. And probably justifiably, it's just slightly annoying that I haven't got an easy recourse to a fix because of the route they took, which was a bit of a lazy shortcut. So, um, there you are, but still look, you know, big picture Do I like the car. Yep. Very much so. Um, and it was nice being in Macron's, uh, price-governed uh, petrol universe uh, of France where it's cheaper there because he's put a cap on the, the fuel prices. So um, uh, 98 Ron was um, about 10% cheaper than it would be over here, even if you were buying it from the uh, payage services.
0: Nice. Didn't mm. know that about the French fuel cap holding uh, holding prices down there. hmm So uh, the next that him on the agenda, automatic stop-start systems.
1: Mm, that's another thing that doesn't work on the BMW.
0: Well, good. <laughs> I, I spent some time in, in a pub with a man from Birmingham who worked for the post office, who was a postman. And he said that these vans that they have that have the automatic stop start it just destroys the the vehicles because it because the things stopping and starting all the time so by the time it's done about one hundred and fifty thousand miles the things turned on and switched off so many times that all of those components everything associated with the stopping and starting is worn out
1: well they're going to ban all that stuff soon anyway aren't they because it's all going to be going to be electric cars sooner or later um so that gets rid of that problem. Um, but uh, they do need to fix the infrastructure problem in terms of charging stations before they're able actually to achieve that. Uh...
0: Yeah, and how long do cars last in Britain? I mean, in, in California, when I was learning to be a smog tech, my understanding was was that any law passed in Sacramento, you know, any w- would take 18 years to penetrate 80% of California's fleet. So Brave. in Brave. other words, you can say no more gas powered cars being made today, right today, and it would still be 2034 before 80% on the car of the cars on the road were electric. If you so so what we're saying is there's still going to be many gas powered cars around in twenty forty five by that measure if Gavin Newsom you know, bans, cars, as he said he was going to, or as the California legislature is meant to do in in 20, in
1: 2035.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, But the actual actual stop start systems themselves, I, I feel that I suppose they're part of a, they're related to these problems with diesel particulate filters that people are having with big diesel trucks. Because these big diesel trucks have these DPF systems on them and the canisters get blocked up. You have to replace them. And if you don't, eventually they clog up and stop the truck altogether. So basically all the trucks that have higher miles on them have just had this DPF delete. Because the trucks themselves will do like half a million miles. And if it's your job working as like a car hauler, you're going to do like 200,000 miles in a year. Well, that would mean every three months you were having a DPF thing done. So they just like, you know, delete them. Then the engines make way more power. There's actually court cases where the people who sell these delete kits are being taken to court by the uh, EPA just uh, at, at the moment. I'm sure if we Google around, we would uh, we would find those kind of stories. But, but yeah, um, all emission systems make the mechanics of just making... Um, cars work much much harder and it all looks to people who just have to make a living with these kind of tools like society is conspiring against them Um, and and, you know I get the environmental angle but you know it's uh, it's tiring and the automatic stop start thing I fear is another one of those kind of uh, one of those kind of things
1: hmm I I'm, I can see the well-meaning attitude, but like, if it's uh, smashing the cars up quicker, then it, it's yeah, it's, you struggle to then make the uh, justify the the other savings, don't you?
0: I'm reminded of that grey Sierra that you had that also had an automatic stop, but it was like it was like Greep's half bulimia, you know, where you uh, where you eat all the food and then don't throw up. Um, is this is, is is the same thing? Your Sierra you used to have automatic stop. And not start, wouldn't it? For for a long while in the winter, there. Pretty good at that. Yeah, it would, it would, you needed to be in the throttle for it to argue. So you needed a bloody three feet every time you were approaching a roundabout or sitting in traffic, especially you were on a little incline. Yeah. The Mitsubishi Mirage, right? This is the winner of the John Summers Award for the single cheapest addition to any vehicle for sale in the United States of America. Because if you are looking at the rear of a Mitsubishi Mirage, you will see a square, a camera, tacked on to the trunk lid, which must be the backing up camera, right? And it's clear to me, that the conversation went something in the product planning team went something like, We've got to have a backup camera to be sales, saying, We've got to have a backup camera to be competitive. The Mitsubishi Mirage must have a backup camera. We're losing sales because you don't have a backup camera. And the accountants went, Well, we're not giving you any more money for the backup camera. And the salespeople went, We've got to have one. And the, and the They both went to the engineers. What's the cheapest way we can get a backup camera? And the engineers went, well, you can drill a hole in the trunk and tack one in. And, you know, for an extra three cents, we can spray it body color. And nobody in the room said, but that will look absolutely terrible. It will look worse than if you bought your own kit from an auto factor store and installed it on the car. Nobody said that. And they went ahead with this grotesque camera on the the trunk lid. And I, I, I was following somebody with one the other day and I thought if I said this to the owner, they would be confused. They bought a cheap car and their cheap car had a backup camera. And I realized that what I perceived as ugliness in fact was design minimalism even design excellence because a mitsubishi mirage buyer does not covet a camera which has been expensively hidden he or she is happy merely with the functionality of being able to reverse and the basic functional transport that a mitsubishi mirage provides
1: Does look like a sort of slightly misplaced asshole. Yeah, like when cats it's walk a away like from that. you.
0: Whole oh, cars bit like that, really. Yeah, um, <laughs> a little
1: bit. It took me a while to find that picture, but so, um, yeah, no, it does look weird. It very much does the one part with a bit of blue tack and gone. Yeah, that, so that
0: will these few questions, sort of quick fire questions, I've got at the uh, at the end here. Um. What's your favorite YouTube channel at the moment? Uh North Dakota Yak Angler.
1: Mm-hmm. So well, that yak as in kayak. It's a guy in North Dakota who goes fishing in his kayak and he fishes for like smallmouth bass and largemouth bass. And he doesn't do any whooping or hollering. And he catches them and goes, "Oh, it's a beautiful fish!" And they're really nice, oh, was a good fight. It really got the adrenaline going, and he lets it go really quickly. Um, he's just a really kind of chilled out ASMR guy. About <laughs> if he's, he just loves his fishing, you know. And he goes along, and they're about ten minutes long. And he's really good <laughs> at fishing, and it's a nice relaxing way to spend sort of ten or fifteen minutes during the day. And he uploads about once a week, and you go, "Yeah, cool," and just watch a bit of that. He might catch a big pike or something like that. And you go, wow! And then carry on. Nice chilled out. I was gonna say I didn't realise fishing
0: was a spectator sport, but then I remember that vacation that we took to Scotland many, many years ago, where you fished and I sat on the bank and read a mystery, a book about mysteries of Scotland or something, if I recall correctly. But I didn't fish, it was a spectator sport for me. So all right. Um, so my favorite YouTube channel at the moment is is this Chops Garage guy, this guy down in Barnstaple. In uh, in North Devon, there buying and selling five thousand dollar cars, trying to do it honestly, and just showing you what uh, sh- how it's not that the used car trade is not dishonest because people set out to be dishonest. It's because more often than not, the customers are dishonest, or there's just a misunderstanding around what's involved to actually make a car, you know, usable and sound and 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 so on. So. Yeah, just an interesting uh, learning for me. What's your favourite car at the moment? At the moment? Um,
1: just, what on just sale like, at the
0: moment? Say, like uh, what we talked about recently. Of, I'm just mean of the moment. It's a totally spontaneous thing.
1: I've been enjoying the Mrs Fiesta ST at the moment. I've been driving that since I got back. It's great. I mean, it looks great. It's a little pugnacious little... We've been considering keeping it when we moved to France uh, and therefore having it at home, not selling it, because we own it and I love it. I don't want to get rid of it. And then when we come back to the UK, just keep it in storage. And when we come back to the UK, we can use it.
0: I drove my Fiesta ST over to Copperopolis yesterday. and When I checked the oil at Copperopolis, the temperature on the gauge was 104 degrees and it was too hot to touch the hood. Like, literally, I was like, oh, oh, oh. To touch touching the uh, the hood it was so <laughs> it was so hot um such a fun little car on on twisty roads like that so not a freeway car the suspension's so hard like i was like have these wheels squared off because i'd not driven it for a, a little bit there um but no what a marvelous little car love the the fiesta st but actually my favorite car at the moment is is that e55 i've driven that Um, Really, since I got back over the summer, to say 2002, I used it throughout Pebble, did a thousand miles on and, you know, through Pebble Week going backwards and forwards and doing different stuff when I was uh, around there. And I just love how that car drives. Um, In a previous podcast, I did, we talked about the Western Automotive Journalist event and I drove an AMG GT 53 there. Um, That car, that car did not, impressed me in this, It was not the same car as mine. I preferred my old E55 to the modern E53. Hang on a minute. Hello, Dana. Hi,
2: I need a bat consultation quickly. Okay. Okay, so I know he wants the Louisville Slugger, which is like a brand of bat, but they only have that one in like 26 inch which is the t-ball it says t-ball on it so i think he's gonna reject it like i don't think he's gonna be happy with it yeah but they do have the rollins which is you know his brand of glove and everything else that is it says pro model 28 inch yeah do you have any thoughts
0: we need to order a louisville slugger in a longer length or go somewhere else
2: Okay, let me look online and see if it comes that way.
0: Yeah, online you can go order them in in each of the in twenty six, twenty seven, or twenty eight inch for about thirty or forty dollars.
2: Yeah, that's about the price here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you can order a Louisville slugger? Yes. Okay, why don't you do that and print it out and we'll give it from Granny and Granddad and we'll just order it. Okay. That's what he really wants.
0: Okay. I know that's okay. what he really wants. Yeah. He's not yeah. going to want the, he's got to have the Louisville slugger. I on think it. so. Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. Can you do that then? Cause I just raced over here and now I have to go get my haircut. Okay. But can you do it and like print it?
0: Yeah. I'm still, right. I'm still recording the, the pod at the moment.
2: Okay. Sorry. Is there anything else your parents would want me to get him from here? I'm sure he would want like a baseball backpack or something, but
0: no, no, don't worry about that. The, they were like, we feel like the bat's not enough. And and I was like, no, I feel like it is because it's so important to Ollie. Yeah,
2: he really wants it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to get out of here
0: then. All right. Okay. Love you. I love you, Bye. Dana. Bye. Bye. So um, what's your favorite bike right now?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I watched an old 44 teeth video where... Uh, Al was, ta- Fagan was taking around that Kawasaki um, uh, in in a, in, a, in the gap in between Superbike races or something. He took the Kawasaki, was it KZ, not the KZ one, the um, the one that they did, the uh, the 240 horsepower supercharged one, whatever that one H2. was. H2. Um, yeah, H2. He took that round at one of the laps and did a rev bomb going down the straight on it. Um, that thing's a beast. Um, I sort of love how it just OTT is in every way. It's <laughs> superb looking cut bike.
0: um, it definitely looked the part in top gun in this top gun maverick movie, the bike. So looked the part. He rides it without a helmet. He rides it without a helmet, of course, but he totally looks the of part. course. Yeah. Um, my favorite bike at the moment is, um, do you remember when we were at Goodwood? Um, I picked up the this the flyer for the Bimotora Tezi H2, and at the time I wasn't sure mm-hmm. about it at all. But I've kept the flyer and I've kept on looking at it, especially the tricolore version. Oh um, yeah, yeah.
1: Really? Yeah, yeah. No, I remember it. Yeah, really, yeah. and bit front heavy, but super Yeah,
0: that at the time I wasn't sure, but at the time I was busy being overwhelmed and cynical about Singapore she's which you know it, it, i I just know what a fabulous looking motorcycle and because it's been sitting on my this the the flyer's been sitting on my desk it's been uh, it's been obsessing me. Um now um what are you reading?
1: Uh I haven't been reading anything at the moment, to be honest, because I've been writing and if I, it's the same spare time.
0: I most recently read um, an article in Haggerty um, about, um, this was my morning, you know, toilet reading about how the countash and it, it wasn't, what I was thinking was this is the Lamborghini Countach becoming like accepted as a collector car. It never used to be accepted as a collector car. Now it's accepted as a collector car because it's sitting in this magazine. And, you know, the previous article was talking about Lincoln's and and had some quote from Frank Lloyd Wright, the great architect. And then, you know, you flip on a few pages and there's artsy photos of Lamborghini Countaches with 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 the doors up. and I just feel that's crazy, because even five years ago, they were far too Honda Civic Type R. It's ugly with those crazy, silly wings and doors. You know, that was what um, the Lamborghini Countach was certainly 10 years ago, probably still five years ago. And now it, it's crossed over. So I just thought that that was interesting. And perhaps that Perhaps that's the story of Pebble. I said there were loads of supercars at Pebble. Perhaps that's the the, the main story um, for for Pebble. Look at that. We've we've talked for our time here now, and we never once mentioned what car won Pebble Beach or anything about what you actually saw whilst you were touring around France. Marvelous. Thank <laughs> you for your time, Mark. A pleasure. Take care. Bye.